Good morning again. Uh, again, my name is Sam Caston. I'm the pastor of education here at Rio Vista, and I also uh, work at the school across the street. And uh, if you've done your personal worship for this week, like those people have like a bag of popcorn on their lap right now, and they're just waiting to see how this plays out, because this week's passage is a doozy. It is a doozy, which explains why Tom and Matt are away at a conference. <laughs> pretty, pretty sure they plan that carefully. Uh, but we are, if you've been here, you know that we're walking through a series uh, from bondage to freedom, and it's a walk through the book of Exodus. And the main idea of the book of Exodus is we serve a God who liberates, who leads his people out of death and slavery and bondage into life and freedom and beauty. And so as we're seeing the early parts of Moses' story, you know, who writes the book of Exodus? It's Moses himself who writes the story in the book of Exodus. And so far, he has not given us a very flattering picture of who he is. In fact, when God comes to him at the age of 80, at the burning bush and says, Moses, I'm choosing you, his immediate response shows that he struggles a lack of faith and trust. We can go there, right? He says, Moses, I'm going to take you and you're going to be the one who goes back to Egypt to face the mightiest empire on the face of the planet and you, I'm going to use you to liberate my people. And Moses comes out with every excuse he can think of. They won't believe me. God says, yes, they will believe you. Uh, but, but I'm slow of speech. I, I, I'm not eloquent. Like as if God is crossing his fingers hoping that he can conquer the mightiest empire on the face of the planet by somebody who's a smooth talker. And finally Moses just looks at the Lord and says, choose somebody else. Just, I don't want to do this. Choose someone else to do this. And let me tell you what is at the heart of Moses when God comes to him. Because God is saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going with you. It's by my power. And every time Moses comes back with the answer to God that basically says this, you, you are not enough. I have to own this. I have to do this in my strength. I need to be eloquent. I need to add to what you're capable of, God, in order to have a successful outcome. And we do that, right? We do that all the time. We do that in our marriages. We do that in our work. We do that in our career where we look at something and we're anxious and we think, I've got to do this in my own strength. And we, we sweat it out and we lay awake at night and we think, how am I going to bring this about? And here's the deal. The Lord comes to us and says, stop. I got you. It's not by your strength that you find peace and joy in this life. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's when you recognize how broken and poor you are, that how out of control, you can't control all these factors of life. It's when you recognize that and you come and you seek shelter under my wings and in my strength that you can have joy when life throws you crazy curveballs. When you're walking through affliction and things that you can't control, oh, to find shelter under the gods, under the wings of a God who controls all things and loves you to such a point that He gives His Son for you, 
when we believe that, we can have peace in the midst of all life's storms. But at this point in Moses' life, he's not there yet. It's all about me. I am not strong enough, so I'm not even going to bother. And God is saying back to Moses, it's not about you. When he says they won't believe, God comes back and says, okay, I'll give signs. When he says, I'm not slow, I'm, I'm too slow of speech, I'm not eloquent, God says, hey, hey, who made man's mouth? I got this. Send someone else. And then God even says, okay, I'll send Aaron along with you. Does that help? You see, this, this book, this passage right now, we're called to see there are two different kingdoms at war here. And it's not just the Hebrews and, and the Egyptians. It's the kingdom of self-absorption, self-salvation. I've got to be good enough. I've got to be strong enough. I've got to do this in my own strength. Kingdom number one, that's Egypt. It's a land of death and slavery. You'll never measure up. Or the kingdom of grace. Where God comes to you and says, hey, stop pretending. I know you're broken. I know you're tired. I'm coming in my strength. I'm coming to lay down the ultimate cost to redeem you. Come to me. I know you're not strong enough, but I am. Come to me. And so this passage this week starts with Moses. And, and remember when he was 40? Moses wants to liberate the Israelites. We know that when he was 40, he saw an, an Egyptian soldier beating a Hebrew. And what does he do? He kills the Egyptian. And the New Testament tells us that he thinks that this is going to cause a revolution and that he's going to lead his people. And if there ever was a perfect time for Moses to give this a shot, it's here. When he is a prince of Egypt, he's got worldly power. He's got everything going for him. Like if there ever was a time where Moses might have stood a shot of doing it in his own strength, man, that was the time. And what happens? He kills an Egyptian and everything implodes. The Hebrews turn on him. The Egyptian Pharaoh seeks to kill him and he bails. He gets one step in to his self-salvation project and everything collapses. And he runs out into the wilderness where he's going to be a shepherd for his father-in-law for 40 years. And he loses all of his titles, all of his strength, even his physical strength, where at the age of 80, God comes to him and says, yeah, now's about a good time. Go back to Egypt. Face the mightiest empire on the face of the planet in this condition. Now you're ready. Say what? You, you don't understand. I'm not strong enough. And God goes, exactly. I am. And I don't want you to get confused about whose strength is going to cause this deliverance. Rest in me. Trust in me. Moses, nope, nope, nope. And even when we get into the first verses of this passage, listen to how this goes. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. So he's just finished talking with God at the burning bush. And he says to his father-in-law, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And I want you to pause for a moment here because what does God just say? You are going to deliver your people. They're going to come out and inhabit the land of all the tribes in the promised land. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. They're going to have all these glorious things happen. And when Moses turns around from God, he goes to his father-in-law and says, I'm going to go back to see whether they're even still alive. 
This is Moses, full of doubt, lack of trust. And does God say, I'm done with you, Moses? No. He patiently pursues Moses and will walk alongside Moses and he will help to humble Moses and ultimately he's going to glorify Moses. But Moses starts struggling. And so Jethro says, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. And so at the end of this passage, we know two things about Moses. One, he doesn't trust the Lord, at least not fully. And two, he thinks the victory is about him. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. And so at the end of this, it says, God comes to Moses and says, go back to Egypt for all the men who sought to kill you are now dead. And so that gives us a clue. If we know our biblical timeline, we know that the Exodus had to have happened based on what the Bible tells us, somewhere around 1450 BC to 1446. And we know from history, we can put together all of the pharaohs that existed back through the 18th dynasty during that time. And when we look at the time where Moses would have been running away, the guy who is reigning on the throne of Egypt is a guy by the name of Thutmosis III. He is a powerful man who conquered all of that territory. And what do you notice? And it's really kind of fits like a glove. Moses runs. He spends 40 years in the wilderness, which means whoever that Pharaoh was, that was Pharaoh when Moses ran, and as Pharaoh up until Moses goes back and then he dies, had to have this exceptionally long reign. And Thutmosis fits the bill. Not only is he at the perfect date, but he's got that long reign that is absolutely perfect. And what else do you notice about this 18th dynasty? Which, by the way, is by far, I think, the most powerful dynasty in the history of Egypt. When we see the Egyptian things come through like the, the King Tut, exhibit. You see Tutankhamun down there at the bottom. He's like a minor pharaoh in the 18th dynasty, yet he's wildly wealthy. You want to know who the greatest pharaoh of the 18th dynasty is, and it's not even close? Thutmosis III. And what else do you notice there? What's the royal name of the 18th dynasty? Amos. Thutmosis. 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 What do you hear there? Moses. This is a royal name. When Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses in the basket and decides to give him a name, she gives him a name that's right out of this dynasty's royal name pool. And so Thutmosis goes on. I've got a flattering picture of him right here for you from, from the Cairo Museum. We still have his body. Do you know what his nickname was? The Napoleon of Egypt. Why? Because he took Egypt to levels that Egypt had never been before. He was a warrior. He was strong. He took Egypt to these maximum levels. He went through and conquered Palestine and the Sinai and Syria and up into the Hittite kingdoms, down south into Cush and Ethiopia. This man was super powerful and God, 400 years of slavery. And when does God decide now's the time? God says, uh, through Moses III, this unbelievably powerful king of Egypt, pharaoh of Egypt, when do I want to pick my time? And does he wait around and find some little minor pharaoh who doesn't know what he's doing? No, he says, Thutmosis III, Napoleon of Egypt, that's eh, about time, let's go. And Moses, when he finds out he's dead and his son, Thutmosis III's son, inherits 
the kingdom, Moses goes into Egypt. Incidentally, this pharaoh, Thutmose III, you know, we're told where the slave cities are, Ramses and Pithom. When they did excavation at Ramses, they found another city buried underneath it called Avaris from the time when the slaves were there. You know who built a palace there? Thutmosis III, which is really, really interesting because when we read the story of Moses, what happens? He goes to the, he goes to the Israelites, he'll talk with them, then he runs over and then he has a conversation with Pharaoh and he goes back and forth where if, well, you would think, like if you're a skeptic, you're going, wait, 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 the capital of Egypt is Thebes, it's 500 miles away, there's no way Moses is making a track every time he switches gears and who he's talking to, making a 500 mile trip on a donkey to say, all right, I got another question. <sighs> All right, hold on. Let me find out that answer. No. This pharaoh had a palace across town where he lived. It's fascinating what archaeology is beginning to uncover here. And so Moses takes his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand and the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt... See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. Now, to remind us, earlier in chapter 4, God laid these miracles out for us. The first one was take that staff, throw it down. It will become a snake. Why? To show that God has the power to take inanimate dead things and bring them to life. Then the second one is to put your hand in your cloak, it turns leprous. Then put it in again and it's healed. Why? Because God wants Moses and the people of Israel who are enslaved to see, I am a God not only of resurrection, bringing life to dead things, but I am a God of healing. And so the passage right after this, the Lord says, if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on dry ground. Remember this. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. You see, from here, God is going to go in and He's going to do battle in Egypt. He's going to unleash the ten plagues where He's going to go to war. And in fact, He says, all the plagues are to execute judgments on the gods of Egypt. He's tearing them down, showing the Egyptians that your gods cannot be trusted. I am the God who has power over creation. Come to me. But the first sign, here, this last sign, that introduces this war between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt that will come through the plagues, he says this is the sign. Take some water, pour it out on dry ground, and that water will become blood. Well, also in archaeology, and just because I'm an archaeology nerd, this stuff gets me excited, they recently found something called the Ipawar papyrus that comes out of Egypt right after the days of Moses. And as you read the Ipawar papyrus, which is held in the Leiden Museum over in Holland, they actually say it's an Egyptian parallel to the biblical ten plagues. And here you have someone from ancient Egypt recording events that just happened and listen to a sampling of what's in this papyrus. Many dead are buried in the river, written from the hand of an Egyptian. What did Pharaoh command them to do with the babies? Throw them in the river. He goes on and says, the river is blood. Hmm, that's plague number one. Cattle moan because of the state of the land. There's plague number five. 
pestilences throughout the land. There's plague number six. Everywhere, barley has perished. So there's the hail that comes down to destroy the crops. Then the locusts that come behind them to finish it off. Fire has gone up on high because God rains down hail and fire. The children of princes are dashed against walls. There's plague number 10 where the firstborn go. The delta, which is the northern part where the Hebrews were enslaved, enslaved, the Nile Delta is in the hands of those who don't know it, which is to say it is being overrun with foreigners. Poor men have become the owners of wealth. What does God promise the Israelites? That when they come out of Egypt, they will come with all the plunder and wealth of Egypt. The gold, the silver, the clothing. They come out with it. And here you have Ippawar saying, after all of these circumstances, poor men have become the owners of wealth. And then when he gives the summary statement, if this isn't Moses, my goodness, behold, Egypt has fallen to the pouring of water. And he who poured water on the ground has carried off the strong man in misery. All is in ruin. So now Ippawar is explaining what happened. Who won? It's this guy who poured water, right? But if you are writing a history and you say, hey, our nation was thrown into turmoil, horrible things happened to us, and you have to give a description of what set, us, what set apart the people who did this to you, he who poured water, what? Like, I'm pretty sure that our national defense officials are not watching Kim Jong-un waiting for him to pour water. It doesn't make sense. It's not a military tactic. It's not like you see someone pour water and you go, oh, DEFCON 1, we're raising. It doesn't make sense. But here, in Ippawar's mind, what is set apart is the one who came and poured water. This announced the battle between Yahweh and the gods of Egypt. And this is how they remembered him. Fascinating. And so the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. And this is the first verse of difficulty in this passage. What do you make of God hardening Pharaoh's heart? He comes to this man who is notoriously arrogant, prideful, cruel, barbaric, and it says God hardened his heart. And it's, it's a weird thing to think about, but God does this to demonstrate his mercy on the people of Egypt and on the Israelites. And let me explain why. Had God gone to Egypt and said to Pharaoh, or Moses, or Aaron actually, and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, all right, feel free. All of those Egyptians would have held to their beliefs. They would have stayed in spiritual slavery. God wants to go to war against the Egyptian gods. And so when he turns the Nile to, to blood, for example, and then it rots, that tears down the god Osiris. Then the frog plague takes down Hecht, and then lice and dung beetles and all the way to livestock and all their gods, as the gods of health and sky and everything else, they're all falling. And then he blots out the sun, and then he takes the Pharaoh's firstborn son. He's just tearing, and Pharaoh himself is a god. He's tearing down the gods. Why? Because when the exodus happens and they come through the Red Sea, guess what? 
There are a lot, we are told, a lot of Egyptians who come with them. In heaven, we will meet lots of Egyptians who came with the Lord. Why? Because God went to war with all the Egyptian gods and proved them powerless. And he did so because he hardened Pharaoh's heart. And there's a double meaning to that. You see, in Egypt, and this, we do a lot of this self-salvation business, and Egypt was masterful at it. Their Bible was called the Book of the Dead. And in the Book of the Dead, you learned your only chance to get to heaven was mummification and protecting the body and making sure that you preserved everything by your own strength, that your organs were preserved and your skin was dried out and wrapped up all that stuff. And then here's a picture called the Hall of Judgment, and it explains to you how you get to an afterlife if you're an Egyptian. And so you see those little things on the top that look like check marks. Those are the gods you have to recant perfectly, recite all the spells to charm the gods to get to the afterlife. But then after you recite 42 statements of, I've never done this, I've never done this, I've never done this, then they take your heart. You see those scales? Anubis, who has the jackal head, is the, leads you to the afterlife. He takes your heart and sets it on one side of the scale. And on the other side of the scale is the feather of ma'at, or the feather of truth. And if your heart weighed heavier than the feather, then the god Amut, who's that crocodile, hippo, lion-looking thing, that was your punishment for eternity. So... When God says, I will make Pharaoh's heart heavy, the literal word there, kaved, means to make dense. Our word glory in Hebrew, kavod, similar, similar cousins in, in the Hebrew language. So God is saying, I am going to make Pharaoh's heart dense, heavy. And every Egyptian and anybody who is raised up and knows the book of the dead, hears he's bringing judgment. He's going to make his heart heavier than the, fair, than the feather of truth. It's a damning statement. A big statement to make against the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And just to give you an idea of how oppressive it was, you had almost no hope of ever going to the afterlife if you were an Egyptian. The gods did not love you. There was no mercy. You went through life thinking there was no hope at all. And just to give you a sampling of the 42 statements that they had to say to the gods with absolute truth, and if you failed at any of these points, you were damned forever. Let's see how you would do in the Egyptian checklist. Ready? I have never, and I want you to stop, hear that weight, the weight of that word. I have never transgressed the law never stolen, never uttered lies, never committed adultery or made anyone weep. I've never attacked any man. I've never been an eavesdropper. I've never slandered any man. I've never been angry without just cause. Like I violated half of these this morning, I think. I've never polluted my body. I've never shut my ears to truth. I've never been a stirrer up of strife. I've never acted with undue haste. How you doing? Feeling good about this? I've never pried into matters. I've never done any evil. I've never raised my voice. I've never cursed God in my favorite to close all of that out. Or I've never acted with arrogance. Right. <laughs> like we, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, like in a room here, we've got you know, a couple hundred people. 
I'm going to pretty confidently say there is not one in here who stands a chance. Not one. I'll, I'll even give you a mulligan on one of those. <laughs> Two mulligans, three mulligans. You're not making it. You know, and the reality is, is God's standards for heaven are higher than that. What does Jesus say to His disciples? Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the weight that you would feel with that falling on you and having to say that I'm perfect, I've never failed, Jesus comes and says, that is the standard of our God too. The difference? In Egypt, it's all about your strength. You'd better do good. You'd better be strong enough. You'd better make it. The reason why we come here on Sunday mornings and we offer up our praise to the Lord is because we had even harder hurdles to overcome. But the Lord came to us and says, it's not yours. Mine. I walk the life of perfect obedience. I fulfill all of that and I take my righteousness and I clothe you with it. Let go of your burdens. Let go of the feeling that you're a failure or that you're too far out of the reach of God or that you have no hope of heaven. No, it's not about you. Christ has accomplished that for you. And on the cross, He takes your sin, all of your failures to Himself, and He pays for them once and for all. You see, Egypt is the anti-gospel. It is, do it in your own strength. You'd better be good enough. You'd better be perfect. And God comes and says, oh, my standards of holiness are so much bigger than that. Oh, but my love for you, I would give everything and did Give my firstborn son so that you could be with me forever if you embrace me. Grace and mercy is yours forever. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. This affection, this this acknowledgement that you stand to inherit, that's what the title of a firstborn gets. He gets the full inheritance of the Father, the double portion. That's ours because of Christ. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, Pharaoh, if you refuse, I will kill your firstborn. I will wipe away his inheritance, even his life. The future of this death religion is death. Walk away from it. And so buckle up because here comes the crazy... Sorry, I can't say that. Here comes the difficult passage. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put Moses to death. Whoa! Where'd that come from? Then Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And so the Lord let Moses alone. Anybody have any questions on that? (laughs) This is good that my parents are in town for this one. Let me tell you what's going on here. Moses is in the business of self-salvation. 
God in the New Testament says something that should terrify those that are in leadership. He says, not many of you should become teachers, spiritual leaders, because you are held to a higher standard. If I got up here, and man, I'm going to tell you I struggle with pride and arrogance, so if you know me as being prideful and arrogant, you don't need to point it out to me, I know. <laughs> but the Lord does not want, the, and the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament, the second greatest act of deliverance that God will ever do, He will not allow Moses to go to Egypt thinking that this is the Moses show. He wants Moses to be humble. He wants Moses to recognize that it's not about him. It's about the Lord. He wants Moses to be humble, to disappear so that God shines through him and nothing else. And here's the deal. In the Old Testament, God gave one sign to show that you were a member of His covenant, His kingdom, His family. And that was the sign of circumcision. And here... As his kids are in adulthood now, which makes this even a little more creepy, Moses has not circumcised his son. It's as though, even though he's been circumcised by his mother, he looks to his son and has such little regard for the Lord that he failed to give his son the sign of the covenant. Moses has not laid it all down. He's not surrendered. He's not committed to the Lord. And God is coming. He's got a million and a half to two million people in Egypt right now in this story who are crying real tears, who are desperate for a deliverer, who want the Lord to hear them and to come and to rescue them. And He is not about to allow some prideful person who thinks it's all about them to be the one who goes to them in Egypt. He wants Moses to be invisible so that when he goes, the people do not see Moses. They see and hear the Lord. There is nothing more damaging to the church than leadership that is prideful and arrogant and who make it all about them. One of the early church fathers said, you are the bride, the church is the bride of Christ, and we are like chambermaids that are helping the bride get ready for that day when they are given to the groom forever. Oh, woe to that chambermaid who tries to woo the eye of the bride. Our job as pastors is not to get up here and say, oh, it's all, even though we do this, oh, I wonder what they think about me. Last night, it's a... <laughs> Ironically, I'm preparing this message and I realize, because this passage is a little weird, I'm realizing this, that I am more worried about what you think of my eloquence in communicating this passage than I am about dedicating my son to the Lord. And God went right in the forehead and said, you're doing the same thing he did. It is not about me. It's not about you. And the more we can shrink and die to ourselves, the more God can shine through us. And that is when beautiful things happen. His strength is perfected in our weakness. See, God comes to Moses and He's saying, Moses, you don't have faith. You're not surrendering. You're not submitting. You're not giving. Even your son to me, like, come on, I need you to humble up before you go and lead 
And Moses is even more humiliated because this is the fourth time that Moses has been saved by a woman, which in the ancient world was humiliating. He was saved by his mother. He was saved by Miriam. He's saved by Pharaoh's daughter. And now he's saved by Zipporah. And it's as if how much more could God have said, it is not about the person. You don't have to be a prince or a king. Look at what I've done for you. Look how many times I've saved you through the most unlikely people. I don't need you, Moses. And then the second part of this, we look at this passage and we say, my goodness, this, this is a shocking passage. God is coming to Moses and, and wants him to do this thing where he's going to wound his son to show this promise, this commitment that, that they belong to the Lord. It's shocking. But it is nowhere near as shocking that God himself will take his son and force his son to undergo a mortal wounding to show not only that we belong to him, but that he belongs to us forever and ever and ever. So yeah, God asks for big things, but here's the reality. He never asks us for more than he was willing to give himself. Think of what he gave. When we get to heaven, as we live out this life, there is a reality that we will never, ever, ever outgive, outlove, outserve, outsacrifice our God. Never. He has been so much better to us than we will ever be to him, ever. And so the story goes on, and the Lord talks to Aaron, and he says, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And listen to this. And the people believed. See, Moses? And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. And I want you to notice here, they are not excited to see Moses. They're not excited to see Aaron. They are excited to hear that the Lord heard them and saw their affliction. It was the promise, the hope that the Lord was with them that causes them to bow their heads and to worship. Moses, thanks for coming. Aaron, eh, it's nice that you're here. Oh, but the Lord heard us. And all of our affliction and tears, celebration. It is not about you, Moses. It's not about you, Sam. Our infinite God is infinitely aware of your afflictions, your hurt, your struggles, your pains, your burdens, your broken dreams, all of your tears that you cry up to him. One of my favorite realizations, and I remember teaching this to my, my high schoolers a while back, and I would ask them, you know, that back when there were six billion, I don't know how many people are in the world now, but let's say it's seven billion people in the world. What is infinity divided by seven billion math people? It's infinity. 
Infinity doesn't diminish no matter how much you divide it. We serve an infinite God whose care and compassion is on you and me right now. And no matter how many hundreds, thousands, millions, billions come to him, the infinite care and compassion of God is on you right now. He hears your prayers. He sees your tears. He knows your afflictions. And He is all infinite, all in with you. Right now, you have all of God right now. And when you think how, how radically He loves you and the lengths to which He would go to show that love and to rescue you from yourself, what a God. When we come to Him, we have no reason to be proud. And close with a Spurgeon quote. Because by law, I include either a Spurgeon or a C.S. Lewis quote in every sermon. But I love this. It's beautiful. Jesus stripped off first one robe of honor and then another and another until he was naked. He was fastened to the cross and there he emptied his inmost self, pouring out his lifeblood, giving himself for all of us. And finally, they laid him in a borrowed grave. How low was our dear Redeemer brought? How then can we be proud? Stand at the foot of the cross and count the scarlet drops by which you have been cleansed. See the thorny crown and his scourged shoulders still gushing with the crimson flow of blood. See his hands and his feet given up to the rough iron and his whole self mocked and scorned. See the bitterness, the pangs, the throes of inward grief show themselves in his outward frame. Hear the chilling shriek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you were not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know Him. You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten Son. And as Jesus stooped for you, bow now in humility at His feet. A realization of Christ's amazing love has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. Pride cannot live beneath the cross. So let us sit there and learn our lesson. And then let us rise and carry that into practice. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to us, your love, the fact that even though we want to hold back from you and we have a hard time surrendering, Lord, you give everything, even your son. Your love shows no bounds. You chase after us. You're our great redeemer. You hear our prayers. You see our tears. You know our affliction. And you stop at nothing to wipe away those tears and to draw us to yourself where we will rejoice forever and ever and ever. Amen.